Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was June 26, 1893. Lee Conley Bradley, later known as Big Bill Brunzi, was born in Scott, Mississippi. Well, at least that's what Brunzi himself claimed. Historian Robert Reisman suggests he was born on the same day, but in Arkansas in 1903. And Brunzi's sister Lainey says he may have been born in 1898. Some sources suggest that he claimed he was older than he actually was to be eligible for military service or to get union benefits. Regardless, Brunzi became a world-renowned blues singer, songwriter, and musician whose work inspired many musicians who came after him. Brunzi's parents were born into slavery. When he was born, his father was a sharecropper, and he was one of 17 children born to his parents. He grew up in Arkansas, and early on, he expressed an interest in music. His uncle, Jerry Belcher, taught him how to play a fiddle that was made from a cigar box. Brunzi called his uncle the greatest man in the world in music at that time. Though Brunzi remembered Uncle Jerry fondly in his writings, there is no evidence of Jerry Belcher in official records, so it's not clear whether he actually existed. Anyway, Brunzi sang and played the violin in local churches while he worked as a farmhand. He also began playing music for tips at country parties and picnics. But by 1912, he had stopped fiddling and became a traveling preacher around Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He did that for several years. The first wife he married was a woman named Gertrude. He later left Gertrude and eventually married other women and had a child with a Dutch woman he met in the Netherlands. Around 1917, Brunzi was drafted into the army and sent to Europe to fight in World War I. After doing that for a couple of years, he returned to the United States. In the 1920s, he moved to Chicago and began working with the Pullman Company to make money, but he was still playing music. It was in Chicago where he began playing the guitar. Papa Charlie Jackson, a popular blues musician, helped teach him to play the guitar. In a 1958 interview, he claimed he started playing guitar in 1921, but, quote, didn't get good at it until 1923. Brunzi's first songs with Paramount Records, House, Rent, Stomp, and Big Bill Blues, were released in 1927. The record did not perform well, but he did make some money from recording, rent parties, and odd jobs. He did more records with Paramount over the next few years, though they continued to sell poorly. But by 1932, he had made several records with the American Recording Corporation, which sold a lot better and made him some cash. In the mid-1930s, Brunzi linked up with pianist Black Bob Hudson and began recording on the label Bluebird, which RCA formed to compete with the American Recording Corporation. The two of them, along with other musicians, formed Big Bill Brunzi's Memphis Five. He also worked with pianist Joshua Altimer, who later replaced Black Bob. Brunzi grew in popularity as a blues singer, and he had captured the attention of Black audiences. In what's recorded as his first appearance before a white audience, he performed at record producer John Hammond's Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall in New York. And his recognition and acclaim grew. 
One of his best-known songs is Black, Brown, and White, a protest song against racism and the condition of Black veterans who returned to the United States after World War II. By the late 1940s, the modern blues he was playing was falling out of favor with Black folks, who were turning to upbeat dance music and slow ballads, as well as the electric guitar-heavy blues of musicians like Muddy Waters, whom Brunzi had actually mentored and introduced to the Chicago blues scene. He took advantage of white people's growing interest in blues and folk music, adding new traditional songs to his repertoire. In 1950, when visiting Iowa, Brunzi decided he wanted to stay there and took a job as a custodian. But it wasn't long before he returned to music and the road. Brunzi toured Europe in 1951, and his performances there stimulated interest in the blues and folk music. In the U.S., Brunzi performed with Pete Seeger, Brownie McGee, and Sonny Terry. By 1953, he was able to make a living on music alone. And in 1955, he published his autobiography called Big Bill Blues. He also toured Africa, South America, Australia, and Southeast Asia. In 1957, he was diagnosed with throat cancer. He was unable to sing, but he continued playing the guitar. In 1958, Brunzi died of cancer on the way to the hospital. He was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1980. Many musicians have cited him as an influence, including Eric Clapton and Pete Townsend. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you still haven't checked out a new show that I host called Unpopular, you can get it anywhere that you get this day in history class. And if you're so inclined, you can follow us at TDIHC Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, y'all, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a podcast that proves history is made every day. The day was June 26, 1919. The Winnipeg general strike officially ended when the strike leaders called it off. In Winnipeg, the capital of Manitoba in Canada, early 20th century workers faced poor living and working conditions and other social inequalities. In the late 1800s, immigrants made their way to Winnipeg to work in agriculture and other growing industries. At the same time, business owners were growing wealthier and building huge homes in the city. But World War I began in 1914, and wages were low while inflation was high. Unemployment was on the rise. Sanitation was poor, and living conditions were crowded. Many people were not making enough money to be able to afford adequate food and medical care. Working-class immigrants in Winnipeg were deeply affected by these conditions. In March of 1919, Canadian labor leaders met in Calgary and called for the establishment of the One Big Union, which later formed as a labor union that worked to empower workers through mass organization along industrial lines. Workers in the building and metal trades were negotiating new contracts with their employers for better wages and working conditions. They were trying to negotiate these contracts through trades councils that represented workers across their industry. But negotiations between employers and trades councils broke down, and a strike committee was formed after member unions in the Winnipeg Trades and Labor Council voted to hold a general strike. 
On May 15th, the Winnipeg general strike began when around 30,000 people left their jobs to strike for their right to collective bargaining and better wages. Telephone operators, retail workers, factory workers, postal workers, and firefighters were among the people who went on strike. The police force remained on duty, though they officially supported the strike. Most of the police force was dismissed for supporting the strike and replaced with so-called special police who walked the streets with clubs. The city's business elite quickly formed the Citizens Committee of 1000 in opposition to the strike. The Citizens Committee maintained that the strike was actually a revolutionary conspiracy led by Bolsheviks and, quote, alien scum. Some mainstream newspapers printed stories that cast the strikers in a negative light and blamed the strike on European workers. On June 5th, Winnipeg Mayor Charles Gray banned parades and public gatherings. Still, news of the strike spread to cities across Canada, and people in places like Calgary, Edmonton, Prince Albert, and Victoria announced their own strikes. Employees told striking workers that they had to get back to work or they faced being dismissed. On top of that, the government passed legislation that allowed the immediate deportation of British-born immigrants deemed seditious. In mid-June, the Royal Northwest Mounted Police arrested several strike leaders. The strike reached a peak on Saturday, June 21st, when thousands of workers gathered downtown to protest the arrests. The Northwest Mounted Police was called to disperse the crowd, and in the ensuing chaos, two people were killed and at least 30 were injured. The special police and military patrols also showed up to break up the protest. Some of the labor leaders were released, but editors of the Strike Bulletin, J.S. Woodsworth and Fred Dixon, were arrested. Fearing more violence, the strike committee called for the general strike to end on the morning of June 26. Seven strike leaders were convicted of seditious conspiracy and were given sentences of six months to two years in jail. The Royal Commission that investigated the strike determined that it was not a criminal conspiracy by foreigners. Still, many strikers lost their jobs and those who didn't found that conditions stayed the same. The striking workers did not immediately win the wage and condition improvements, union recognition rights, or collective bargaining they aimed for. But unionism and labor actions continued to spread in Canada and the creation of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation political party got some strikers elected to City Hall and the Manitoba legislature. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you want to hit us up on social media, you can do so. We're at TDIHC Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.